0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
1: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang.
2: at Bloomberg's world headquarters in New York.
0: And Ahmed Lubbo in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology.
2: Coming up, hawks hit stocks. Jerome Powell spooks markets. That's as Mike Wilson over at Morgan Stanley warns growth equities face pressure ahead. We'll bring you the details.
0: Plus, more job cuts at Meta. The Facebook parents planning to lay off thousands as soon as this week. More on our Bloomberg exclusive ahead.
2: And China shakes up oversight of its vast tech arena. That's as Xi Jinping focuses on fending off US sanctions and achieving self-sufficiency in areas from AI to chips. All that and so much more coming up. And there is a lot to digest in the macro part of these markets today. It was one of a perspective coming from Jerome Powell. Coming out fighting and we see that maybe the Reserve is not done tackling inflation, NASDAQ falls one and quarter percent so big tech on deck. We look at all-country world index. In fact, all this worry around what the Federal Reserve, the central bank to the world will do affected European trading. We're off by 1.3% when you look at the all-country benchmarks. And I'm looking at this inversion. This, of course, is that the two-year bond yields, the cost of borrowing at the two-year, is higher than at the 10-year at the moment by a full percentage point. So, we see negative 104 basis points when you're looking at the level inversion. This signals the worry that the market has about a recession to come. Flip it on a gear. Let's look at the US dollar strength that we saw on the back of that hawkish tone. It meant that Bitcoin is under pressure too, up by 1.9%. And Chair Powell, Ed, having some fighting words for crypto in particular as well.
0: Yeah, those fighting words, they were the main driver when it came to single stock names in the equity markets. Although some individual stocks I looked to, Rivian down 14.5%. The company plans to offer $1.3 billion in green convertible notes. That could potentially have a dilutive effect on outstanding shares down the road. Tesla under pressure down 3%, as Musk talked about Twitter, uh, Twitter's debt burden. Amazon was down two-tenths of a percent. Alphabet parent of Google down 1.3%. Those two names, Goldman's top tech picks between 2023 that didn't do much to support the stock after Fed Powell made those comments. Then Meta, I won't actually just show the trading. Meta had been markedly higher after my colleagues and I reported that more layoffs are coming in the thousands as soon as this week. And then post-Powell completely fell away, actually ending up trading down two tenths of a 1%. That is the effect that, that Chairman Powell is having in this market, Carrie. And we go back to basics. We haven't talked about this in a little while, but the prospect of higher rates, discounting the present value of future profits, particularly for that tech sector, and then you price in that recession risk, which is now back on the table as well.
2: But this is the conundrum, of course, that the Federal Reserve has to focus on. When you've got inflation right. still well above the 2% target, it affects the labor market. As you have been reporting with the likes of Meta, companies have to start to squeeze. They have to put you know, jobs on the line. And I thought that Elizabeth Warren, of course, really coming out and asking, look, what do you say to those jobs that are going to be lost? And Chair yes. Powell saying, I tell them that everyone is affected by inflation. But dig into the micro detail that you've been reporting out. Just tell us a little bit about, well, what the under duress over at Meta, whether this is something we can read across to the rest of the tech market.
0: Yeah, understanding from sources is that VPs and director level staff are making lists. These are new layoffs, thousands of new potential job cuts on top of the 11,000 from last year and on top of the flattening of middle management earlier this year mm. um, because they're still under duress, right? This is the year of efficiency. It's just that more's needed to get there.
2: And when we think about efficiency, many would say that's, of course, why key growthier names are being focused on because suddenly their future growth perhaps looks less certain it's what we've heard time and time again particularly from some of the uber bears out there one of them being morgan stanley's mike wilson who says once again even though we saw the sell-off of 2022 you could see a 20 percent downside for the growth names just take a listen
3: I think there's plenty of stocks that are probably going to go bankrupt, you know. I mean, I, I don't think that's a crazy statement, but, but that's not the bulk of the stock market, okay. So, that this, is a, this is a pocket of the stock market. Um, and then I would say, but overall, like the growthier stuff and the thing that even the cyclical names that have gone too far now could have as much as 20% downside, no problem.
2: Growthier stuff. Let's talk about... Well, one particular analyst who looks across the whole gamut of technology, TMT names in general, Needham, Managing Director and Senior Analyst, Laura Martin. Laura, it is so good to have you on the show. And just tell us the breadth of companies that you analyze. Are we currently throwing everything out with the bathwater at the moment because we're worried about future growth no matter who you are?
4: Yes, because as bond yields go up, bonds look more attractive to, as a substitute to equity, so we're getting net equity outflows into the bond market. That makes sense economically, and that's a higher like level of the capital structure, so they have lower risk in case somebody does go bankrupt. Um, and I think specifically as you get this advertising downdraft, advertising has 80% margins, so Google, specifically Google and Meta, or Alphabet and Meta, really are going to be under margin pressure if we go under recession and if advertising demand gets worse.
0: Laura, in the context of multiples on some of the names that you you cover, what's the biggest concern to the market right now? Is it this idea that rates will go higher in bigger increments or are we starting to get more and more concerned about how deep a recession might come?
4: So the biggest concern is in a discounted cash flow, which is the academically rigorous way to value these companies, if you have a higher discount rate any cash flow that comes from like year four and future, like Amazon is making no money, Meta is having, you know, really in a downdraft in its profit margins, that all, those out years become much less valuable and so what you care about a lot is current year cash flow and next year's cash flow and on that score Apple, $90 billion a year of cash flow, like super safe, feels like a good place to hide, super liquid. Google still continues to have high free cash flow, we'd like them to cut costs faster, but a lot of their value is not past year five, which in a rising interest rate environment, those past year five cash flows are really discounted harshly. Let's dig in on
2: actually the only name that you have an underperform on and it's meta. They are trying to talk up efficiency in particular. They are, of course, looking towards their four jobs that are on the line, Laura. But ultimately, I've looked at some of your decks on this company, after their earnings, you said you like the word efficiency, but are they just rearranging, well, the chairs And the
4: Titanic is one of the phrases you used. True. I mean, I think the question we're asking is, does Meta have a terminal value in its core business? Because one of the data points we're reading is most of the layoffs uh, the CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, is making sit in the core business of Meta that's being undermined by TikTok. Assuming TikTok doesn't get banned, the question we have is, in the core business that funds the Metaverse, does he actually have a terminal value? Or does he just lose all his creators and all his users in the first world countries to TikTok instead, assuming it stays in business? I think that's a very real question for these network effect businesses that benefit from network effects on the way up, but get slaughtered by network effects like MySpace did on the way down.
0: Yes, Laura, how worried you about brain drain? I find this really interesting. One source described this latest round of layoffs to me as more of a sledgehammer. If the 11,000 in November were done with a scalpel, this is a sledgehammer. And I wonder, what's the risk that they lose all of these smart people that are trying to drive this longer term transition so they don't even get there?
4: Agree 100%. I think it's hard for morale to lay off people. I think what happens is, if you're not sure you're gonna get laid off, Your most talented people go and proactively look for another job and get hired away. So who you end up left with is the people who can't get the next job. So you end up with the people that are the worst of the bell curve, not the best, because the best people go somewhere else where their job security is intact.
2: Lastly though, when you hear about actually other areas of focus, particularly for analysts at the moment, is saying one area that could perhaps be an upside potential is
4: artificial intelligence. Are you
2: buying that, Laura, particularly for some of these big companies that you monitor?
4: So it's a great question, so um, last year was the year of the metaverse, I think this year is going to be the year of AI, so the best question is, when we're sitting here a year from now in early 24, is anybody talking about AI or have we moved on to something else? (laughs) I think most of these big tech companies have been using machine learning for a long time to make their recommendations better, to sort their search pages, they've all been using machine learning. You know, sort of chat GPT and generative AI is new to the consumer market, but a lot of these tech guys would say they've been using AI slash machine learning for years. So um, I I don't I don't know whether AI is as big a deal for these large tech-driven companies as it is for the consumer, where suddenly there's a use case that's really exciting in, in both like um, both pictures and in um, and in you know answers. We're gonna
2: be- putting that to a key Salesforce executive a little bit later.
4: Needham Managing
2: Director and Senior Analyst. Laura Martin, what a day to have you on. Thank you so much for spending the time.
0: Time now for the VC roundup. And we're starting with payment platform startup Airwallex. Bet by Tencent, which just acquired an online payment business license in China. The transaction cleared all regulatory hurdles with Chinese authorities and now allows Airwallex to become a third party payment provider in the world's second largest economy and boost its access to the local market. The founders of Argo AI, the autonomous vehicle company that was shut down last year, are launching a new self-driving business that could specialize in trucking and ride hailing, according to sources. Amazon, which almost rescued Argo last year but eventually pulled out, is not an investor in the new firm. And finally, Salesforce's VC arm is launching a new $250 million fund, its largest to date, to invest in guess what? generative AI startups. The enterprise giant also unveiling new tools integrated with OpenAI's technology and dubbed Einstein GPT. They will be used for functions such as drafting customer service response or initial sales emails. We'll have more on that later this hour, of course, Caro, with Salesforce's Service Cloud CEO, Clara Shi.
2: And Ed, to that point, we were just hearing from Laura Martin saying, look, so many of these big tech companies have been using machine learning and other forms of artificial intelligence for years. And I thought it was really interesting that through Einstein, Einstein, I'm sure it's Einstein. known as, uh, Salesforce AI is actually, in, they've been using, what is it, 200 billion AI-powered predictions per day yes. anyway. So what really is this large language model going to be adding to in terms of their overall provision?
0: I think I've got a smile in the corner of my mouth, right? Because you say it, Salesforce, OpenAI, GPT in the headline. But it goes back to what everyone's been telling us on the show. Enterprise is where they see the most promise for these applications. It's just the headlines keep on coming.
2: And it's not just enterprise-focused software companies using it. There's banks. I've been hearing of plenty of financial companies really trying to harness the power of artificial intelligence. We can dive into that a little bit now with Stephanie Chu, general partner over at Portage. It's a global investment platform focused on fintech on financial services you've got what three billion dollars in assets under management you've recently just closed a 655 million fund three it's one of the largest early stage venture funds out there in the world of fintech and so therefore steph artificial intelligence is that a hype that you're hearing or is it a reality that you're investing in
5: it's definitely the one exception to the macro that we've been seeing. And I would say we back the world's most innovative financial services companies and we're already seeing interesting applications beyond enterprise and beyond the obvious, which I think most people would think, you know, how can AI in a large financial institution really improve customer service? That's kind of the first most obvious place. But I do think it can enable so much more in the future. I can imagine a world in which your complete financial picture as a consumer is actually completely automated by AI. So it's beyond just being able to interact in natural language, but also be able to actually have the AI and or machine learning do things on your behalf.
0: Steph, I know an area in fintech that you're you're really positive about is vertical SaaS. And what I wanted to ask you is, do you make bets on AI-related startups? Or do you make bets on the companies and startups that will benefit from other AI tools? Do you see what I mean?
5: I'm much more excited about vertical-specific SaaS than I am about horizontal AI. Because at the end of the day, I think you still need very specific semantic subject matter expertise, and a focus on a specific target segment in order to create a great product experience. So we have always been focused on know your customer, serve your customer well, and AI is going to be a tool that allows you to better serve that customer and that segment. So ultimately, I think we're much more bullish on the vertical focus rather than the horizontal technology, which I think at the end of the day is probably going to be owned by the likes of OpenAI. Ultimately, and I would add one other thing, which is in the future, if... If the models are in fact kind of commoditized, what really matters is the very specific data that you have. And proprietary data becomes the moat and the major advantage. And therefore, that also favors vertical specific applications versus horizontal applications.
0: Steph, I wanted to talk a bit about the environment that we're in. Um, Matt Harris from Bain uh, Venture uh, Capital Partners has been on the show recently. We had Layla Sturdy from Capital G both basically saying, actually, it's a great time to be writing checks, particularly at the earlier stage of the curve. Do you kind of agree with them that there's a lot of opportunity in this moment?
5: I would say... I would say it depends on how you you think about what early stage is. I think across the board, because of where the Fed rates are, Risk assets have, are now out of favor. I would say the largest impact has been on Series C and Series D in the market, where we've seen valuations drop more than 50% at Series D, really mirroring the public markets dropping 70%. Mm-hmm. I would say feed and Series A valuations, which are on the earlier side of the curve, have also, we've also seen a trickle-down effect there, but it's been the biggest lag. So valuations there have dropped more like 10 to 25%. Across the board, I would say, it is a great time to be a venture investor. However, the the later stage venture deals where there's been an exodus and an imbalance of supply and demand in terms of capital have seen the largest valuation fallouts. When you're looking at the early stages
2: you do, Steph, where in the world do you focus? Because what's really interesting about your portfolio is it is so global. I'm looking at French, at German and tech companies, for example. Is Europe right? Is it still
5: about the US? Is it Asia? I would say we've got a really global portfolio About a third of our portfolio is in europe there are very significant as you guys would know regional differences even within europe in terms of where the regulatory environment is going in terms of if you look at the differences between banking insurance and wealth management so we see global macro trends as being really interesting there's investments to be made in europe investments to be made in north america i would say in times like this where valuations have decreased globally we tend to see flight to capital to larger more established markets like the us like the uk etc But obviously, within fintech, you need to be aware of the regulatory nuances of each specific country Mm -hmm. that you operate in.
0: Steph Chu, general partner at Portage, thank you so much. You know, we're moving our showtime next week, earlier in the day, 12 Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, and we want to take that global view. You know, it's interesting to have a partner on that looks globally and outside of North America. Now, let's turn very quickly to crypto. Grayscale's fight over its Bitcoin ETF begins in court. We bring you the latest details out from Washington, D.C. That's next. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.
1: alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at bloomberg.com techsf.
4: We're watching what's been happening in, in the crypto space. And you know, what we see is, you know, quite a lot of turmoil. We see fraud, we see a lack of transparency, we see run risk, lots and lots of things like that. And so what we've been doing is is making sure that the that the um, regulated financial institutions that we supervise and regulate are careful, are taking great care in the ways that they engage with the, uh, you know, with the whole crypto space.
2: Some of Fed Chair Powell's remarks on the crypto market of course this morning on Capitol Hill. And in fact, some other news in terms of crypto. A few minutes ago we just learned that Binance US has indeed won court approval to buy Voyager Digital, allowing Voyager to end its bankruptcy, repay customers, of course, all of this following the fallout of FTX. Also today was the start of a court fight between Grayscale Investments and the SEC over plans to convert, well it had hoped to convert, its $14 billion Bitcoin trust into an ETF. Pleased to say our new resident in town of DC, one k Lines, so we miss a lot from New York, but doing amazing work from Washington, including your crypto show, Kaylee. Just talk to us about actually what felt a lot of questioning coming out, fighting almost on behalf
6: of Grayscale. Yeah, really, the tone of the three judges on this appellate court today really seems to have shifted the odds of many people of Grayscale actually coming out with a victory here. Our own analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, Elliot Stein, previously had a 60% chance on the SEC being victorious. In this case, they now actually think it's 70% odds in favor of Grayscale because the judges did seem skeptical of the SEC's argument that Bitcoin futures should be treated differently than Bitcoin Spot. Of course, that's the argument that that Grayscale has been pushing against, saying you should be t- treating futures and spot the same The same concerns about fraud and manipulation the SEC has should be applicable to both. And it did seem like those three judges may be more sympathetic to Grayscale's view, hence the market reaction we're seeing today, uh, saw today, GBTC up 9.6% on the day, so that discount to its net asset value narrowed.
0: Right. The market's going to try and discern what the outcome's going to be, yeah. right? There's a risk in that, of course. And, and you know, you're always hesitant to say, "Oh, what would happen if?" But in the event the ruling falls in Grayscale's favour, it opens some doors, right? What does it mean for them and for this industry?
6: Yeah, the, I mean, if is obviously the operative word there, and it could still be a while before we ultimately get a ruling, like second or third quarter. And then when we do, it matters what the language in that ruling is. Should the court rule in favor of Grayscale and, put, uh, Grayscale and push back against uh, the SEC's rejection of this application, does it actually force them into accepting it, or could it leave a door open for the SEC to slap it down another way? That will be really important, but of course, if Grayscale ultimately is able to make this conversion, it would get rid of their net asset value discount problem because it would allow uh, redemptions, it would potentially turn into an ETF, and it could mean that other products like it could be introduced in the market in the future. And just, we broke just before you came, of course, the news regarding Voyager being able to
2: be sold to Binance U.S. There were other assets on deck when it comes to FTX, and actually it looks as though they're Mm. delaying the auction briefly.
6: Yeah, Ledger X, which was their derivatives platform, it was actually one of the few areas of the FTX empire that remained solvent, had its auction delayed from today to March right. 22nd. Unclear the reason why, but that's something we're going to have to follow.
0: Bloomberg's K-Lines, our voice, Finreg voice out in D.C., thank you.
4: May
7: the U.S. claims that it seeks to out-compete China, but does not seek conflict. Yet, in reality, its so-called competition aims to contain and suppress China in all respects and get the two countries locked in a zero-sum game.
2: Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York.
0: And Ahmed Ludlow in San Francisco.
2: And Ed, that was just China's new foreign minister there, calling the US approach to Beijing a reckless gamble. And this, of course, is sort of put in stark contrast with what was happening on the Hill today. Congress moving yet closer to restricting access to China's TikTok app with a new bipartisan bill aimed to protect US user data. Clearly, the hostility is front and center when it comes to trade, technology. We've got the perfect guest to discuss it all. Paul Triolo. Albright Stonebridge Group Senior Vice President of China tech policy. You're about to go out to China soon, Paul. Just talk to us a little bit about, first and foremost, what you heard from Chinese leadership today. A really tough stance, finally, seemingly, that they've decided to fight fire with fire in some way.
3: Yeah, I think it's not surprising. Um, This this sort of rhetoric has been Xi Jinping has been very careful not to use this this uh, fairly straightforward rhetoric and in, uh, in calling uh, you know calling out the 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 the, the U.S. policy on China. Um, so it's not surprising. It's come on the heels, of course, of the balloon incident, um, the cancellation of Secretary Blinken's visit to China, and then a whole host of U.S. actions, um, export controls, um, and other other restrictions on Chinese technology acquisition. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we've had uh, Congress. Um, the, the, the hearings last week, the off a season of hearings with the House Select Committee uh, on China, for example, which, you know, used some pretty harsh rhetoric. So it's not surprising to see China uh, push back a bit on this. Um, but it is unusual for C to use such strong language.
2: Before we get into the tit for tat and perhaps what's happening in terms of privacy here in the U.S., I'm interested in what you made of the shakeup when it comes to trying to ensure AI, particularly chip making. Is front and center for China that they don't somehow lose out despite these trade embargoes and and issues that are put on hold in terms of getting hold and access to certain U.S. technologies. Brilliant.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the restructuring that we're seeing coming out of the NPC, and of course, it's it's early days here. It reflects to some degree in the technology sector this recognition that the U.S. is is putting increasing pressure on uh, on key priorities for Beijing, like advanced computing. So we've seen the U.S. take action, for example, on export controls, and there'll probably be some restrictions on outbound investment. So I think China is is still grappling with the, the full implications of that, um, and there'll be a lot of focus on domestic investment in these key hard and core technology sectors, for example, like semiconductors and artificial intelligence. Um, but I think that, that Beijing is really is really struggling to figure out a way uh, to, to, to invest, keep investing in its domestic industry and push back probably at some point on some of these restrictions we're seeing um, the U.S. erect around China's companies' access, access to critical technologies.
0: Paul, as we came on air about 30 minutes ago, a headline hit the Bloomberg terminal, a news story. Xi's frustration at Biden grows with warning of conflict. And it talks about how a lot of the communications coming from the new foreign minister uh, gang. But actually Xi himself is under a lot of pressure domestically with the economy having to pivot policy to be supportive of industries that they have been cracking down on for a number of years now. How does he manage that process to
3: your mind? It's a good question. It's very complicated. I think at, w- at one level, uh, coming out of the zero COVID um, restrictions, China has sort of pivoted in the economic and social sphere to show that it's open for business. And so part of the game is to show foreign investors. Uh, and businesses that China is sort of back on track after after some difficult a difficult period of zero COVID lockdown. So that's one issue. But at the same time, uh, China is facing the uh, U.S. restrictions on technology, and also, of course, uh, concerns around China's uh, continued support for Moscow um, and talk in Washington uh, and in European capitals about the potential for sanctions. So, as as, as C surveys the landscape here, it's it's opening up and uh, and 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 trying to, to portray trade business as usual, but China's facing a lot of uh, pressure, for outside pressure, um, that's going to push against that. How successful, to your mind,
0: has China been in leveraging some of the U.S. Uh, partners and allies in, in getting around this, this technological blockade? You know, it seems as if the U.S. is convincing most of the Western world to go along with it.
3: Uh, That's very much a work in progress. It's tricky because uh, in some areas like export controls, of course, there have been intense negotiations uh, between the Dutch government and the Japanese government about aligning with some of the tough controls that the U.S. put on in October, but with all these kinds of uh, collaborations between allies that the U.S. is trying to to align uh, to to contain or constrain China in some of these technology areas, the devil really is in the details, um, and it can be tricky to get uh, you know countries that may have similar may not have similar kinds of export controls or investment restrictions to go along with this. So it's going to it's very much a work in progress. But yes, clearly China is very concerned about this and is working overtime to try to to push, for example, for better relations with, with Europe. Um, and and try to sort of drive a wedge between the the U.S. and Europe on some of these issues.
2: Talking of relations with Europe, ByteDance CEO has been out there trying to woo in many ways European regulators, same as they have been here in the United States, but different tactics being taken on. At the moment, the EU seems to be more inclined to listen to how ByteDance might be able to put in place restrictions to data flow from TikTok use. Just talk to us about the data, the privacy argument that's going on here in the U.S. U.S. vis-a-vis China.
3: Yeah, and obviously TikTok is sort of the poster boy for this. So, so TikTok has been very uh, aggressive uh, as part of its uh, negotiations w- with the U.S. government that have gone on for about two years now. Installed to be more public about what the kinds of uh, uh, procedures it's putting in place to protect. U.S. citizen data. So over the last month, yes, the TikTok CEO has been very outspoken uh, in discussing all the measures they're taking, which are pretty considerable. They spent something like 1.5 billion dollars to architect a sort of U.S. enclave that protects Mm. user data and protects against uh, things like censorship and things like, and they're also allowing review, for example, of their AI algorithm. Um, So, but they have a tall order to convince the U.S. Congress and others uh, in in the Biden administration that they're taking enough steps to protect U.S. U.S. privacy. U.S. user data. The CEO will testify in front of Congress on March 23rd in front of a House committee, and that will be a key indicator of how, uh, how successful uh, TikTok sort of, uh, uh, you know, um, spin is in, in terms of convincing U.S. regulators uh, that they've taken enough steps to protect U.S. user data. The Europeans are also watching this very carefully, of course, to see how that comes out.
2: Paul, with all your knowledge of China and its leadership, are you convinced?
3: Well, I've actually I've seen the um, I've seen the the, the 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 TikTok proposal, and it looks to me like it's pretty it's pretty tough. It, it's it's it, they they decided not to contest. Um, the national security concerns that the U.S. government was, was, was putting forward. And so they've architected this system using a lot of uh, a, a very capable cybersecurity and other data privacy experts to try to address those concerns head on. So at least from what I've seen, again, it's ter- it's it's difficult to know the full details, but from what I've seen them present, it looks like it's it's a pretty uh, serious effort to, to address the concerns, and they spent a lot of money on this. I mean, $1.5 billion, and they estimate it'll take about a $1 billion to run that enclave. And so I think that, you know, that's that's I don't know any other social media company that's taken those kinds of actions uh, to try to address head on uh, those concerns around uh, data privacy and, and, and user user data privacy. So it's a pretty impressive effort, at least so far. The question for D.C. is if it's sufficient. Paul Triolo, Albright Stonebridge
0: Group, senior vice president of China and tech policy. Thank you so much. Now, coming up. Elon Musk took the stage at the Morgan Stanley conference in San Francisco. We'll bring you the big takeaways next, including his thoughts on AI and speaking of earlier of AI, we heard from Citadel founder Ken Griffin with his thoughts on this technology. This branch of technology has real impact on our business. and I'm actually really excited to see how this changes the world.
1: Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
2: Housing and tech are very quote, unquote, interest rate sensitive. Construction and and housing, I think, is obvious when you have a short mortgage cycle. But for tech, we had a decades-long equity uh, availability of capital, and that's been shut down by the Fed as well. So those are going to feel the impacts first. The macro perspective. J.P. Morgan's global wealth management chief, Tom Kennedy, earlier on Bloomberg Television with his thoughts on just how the tech sector is currently evolving amid this new interest rate regime. Let's talk a little bit more about tech. First up, Apple adding a new color to its palette, yellow. The company announced a yellow version of the iPhone 14 and 14 Plus today, adding to the existing midnight, blue, purple, red, and starlight options. And sticking with new announcements, Sonos is revamping its line of home speakers, aiming to go after the market more aggressively. That's why, of course, Google and Amazon are rolling out fewer new products at the moment. The audio company now has two new models, the Era 300. It's a form of advanced surround sound. And the Era 100, a replacement for a Sonos One, a key rival, of course, to Apple's HomePod and Google's Nest products, as well as the Amazon Echo. And finally, Uber, well, it's launching some new features of its own to make airport travel, which I've just done, less stressful, from step-by-step instructions to guide you through the airport to walking ETAs. It's also expanding availability for Uber reserve offerings throughout the United States and Canada. Meanwhile, Ed, I've got to get your take right now on, well, we get lost in the noise sometimes surrounding Elon Musk, but he did right. take to the stage on the minutiae around Twitter today. It was in a Morgan Stanley event.
0: He took it to the stage. He gave us 10 minutes notice. He tweeted a live <laughs> link. And then the Bloomberg newsroom just erupted into motion. And we gathered the best and brightest across and we did a live blog. And, well, there were a lot of questions. Everything from when's the Twitter executive bench going to be as deep as it is as Tesla? What is going on with Twitter's debt? How is Twitter going to be different to when it was when you acquired it? So much to discuss. Unfortunately, my editor and friend and co-sufferer through the process, Sarah Fryer, joins me on set. There were a lot of takeaways. You and I wrote about a number of them. One was the debt. I think we start there, right? And this idea that uh, the debt is $1.5 billion annually, but he'd kind of justified the savagery of, of laying off all those staff. What did he have to say?
7: Well, he said now that debt is about the same as their their cash flow. So they're getting to be cash flow equal, maybe edging towards cash flow positive, which, um, you know, he went on to say that they are now EBITDA positive. Uh, and I, I just think that this is part of of his optimism. We, we've seen a lot of optimism from, from Musk, despite spending $44 four billion on Twitter, despite doing all of those layoffs, he really thinks that he can turn it around. And, and not only does he think he can make a cash flow positive, he thinks that he can rake in more from Twitter's advertisers.
0: We actually kind of learned a little bit about how he's measuring success at Twitter. And, you know, you know the social media landscape so well. He said, don't worry about monthly or daily active users. Look at user hours. I think he said 130 million user hours per day is what Twitter is hitting currently. What does he mean by that?
7: Well, what he means is they have this platform that really has the pulse of the news. It's where everyone's talking about what's happening and they aren't able to monetize that or make right. money off it through advertising at the level that, that he wants them to. He said actually he, he was shocked at how poorly they are uh, turning that attention into money. And one of the, the barriers to that is he thinks that the ads aren't relevant enough. Um, I, I think partially that's because Twitter just doesn't gather the same kinds of data on users that Facebook does, um, that other companies are able to based on their activity. Um, And and then the other factor is that there is this big issue about um, what advertisers call brand safety, which is that we don't want ads appearing next to Mm. the latest tragedy or or even next to hateful commentary, um, what people are saying that that may... um, You you may just don't don't want to sell next to that. And Twitter, because it's a place for the news, is also the place for a lot of that kind of content that that perhaps is is not as um, inspiring, you know, don't necessarily want to think about um, where you're going to get your next burger while you're watching a tragedy.
2: When we think about oversight, in particular under Elon Musk's watch, and safety in many ways. I know European regulators have been thinking about this a lot in looking towards some new laws that are going to put into place to protect consumers come 2024. But it looks as though the US FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, also plans to depose Elon Musk as part of its probe, right? There are a lot of people interested in this.
7: Yeah, I think that this, this is a company that is going to come under a lot of scrutiny in part because of the layoffs. It, you're cutting a lot of staff that previously were hired because of, of what regulators wanted. They wanted somebody to work on harmful content, to work on um, taking down um, information operations from, from foreign operatives of the like that, that tried to influence the 2016 presidential election. I mean, there, there were people in place because they were needed at the time, and Twitter is going to have to untangle, you know, did we cut too deep? Did we, did we get rid of people that were there for a reason? Um, and, and it's going to be tough to answer regulators. I think Musk is saying, you know, we will make those hires we need to make. Uh, mm. We have a lot of priorities right now. Sarah Fryer, thank you so much.
0: We were telling you about this earlier in the show, Salesforce getting in on the generative AI arms race. Let's bring its service cloud CEO, Clara Shai for more. You've just been on stage, Clara, and you've talked about Einstein GPT. Let's start here. Did you partner with OpenAI because it was the best technology or because it was good marketing?
8: Einstein GPT, we're really thrilled to announce today at the Salesforce Trailblazer DX event here in San Francisco. Einstein GPT is the world's first AI generative AI purpose-built for CRM, and we are taking an open ecosystem approach. OpenAI is, is our initial partner, but we'll be adding additional partners in the coming months.
0: How does this improve the offering to your, to your CRM enterprise clients? What is it that they're getting out of this?
8: Now, Einstein GPT is really about combining Salesforce's proprietary AI with an ecosystem of vetted generative AI partners to uh, to create personalized content for sellers, service agents, marketers, commerce managers, as well as IT developers. And it's for the employees; it's about making them more productive, and for customers, it's about delivering more tailored, relevant experiences. Because. I believe you already deliver, what, 200 billion
2: AI-powered predictions per day anyway within Customer 360, Clara. So how does the large language model change things up if you're a user?
8: That's a great question. So we've been on this, this AI journey for over seven years now. We, we introduced the world to Einstein in 2016, and there are over 200... 200- and 15 billion predictions that Einstein it gives out every day today across customer interactions. Einstein GPT is the next generation of our Einstein AI and it it includes generative technology which means that content gets created for sellers. For example, a draft email to a prospective customer. For service agents, a draft response to a customer service chat or email. Um, For marketers, generating dynamically generating landing pages and email campaign content. The human stays in the loop they get final say before they hit send. Hmm. And OpenAI say, look, it allows them to learn more about real-world
2: usage that's critical to responsible development. I'm interested in that responsible development element because it's interesting, some key financial companies, for example, have been limiting their use, employees' use of ChatGPT, worried about their IP, basically. How are you going to ensure this is a safe space for all your customers to work in?
8: It's the difference between consumer and business applications. Thus far, a lot of what has been covered in the news about about generative AI has been consumer applications that are open-ended and, frankly, have have higher uh, safety and accuracy concerns. In the business space, we can really focus the use case, the job to be done on specifically what does a salesperson need, specifically what does a service agent need to do his or her job.
0: Clara, the other big piece of news is Salesforce's venture arm launching a new $250 million fund, specifically targeting startups in generative AI. You alluded to it earlier about future partnerships. But what are you looking for with that fund?
8: That's right. Our new generative AI startup fund from Salesforce Ventures is really focused on investing in and nurturing the next generation of AI startups. We believe it's very early days in generative AI. And, you know, there's a lot that we don't know yet. And so being able to to have an ecosystem play is very important um, and also to give our customers choice. Clara,
2: Ed referenced it at the start, this sort of feels like a PR offensive around AI or a bit of a marketing ploy. But ultimately, you've been doing AI for years.
8: Does it frustrate you that suddenly everyone's talking about ChatGPT? Or was it needed, this sort of conversation? I think it's great. It's created consumer excitement and demand. My 85-year-old neighbor even knows about (laughs) ChatGPT. And ultimately, you know, businesses they care about AI in the context of driving business results, especially in this macro environment. How do I close more sales? How do I respond to my customer support issues more quickly? And so that's our true north in developing these applications in an ethical and responsible way. Salesforce Service Cloud CEO, Clara Shai,
2: running off stage to be with us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Meanwhile, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology, Ed. But we've got a pretty great lineup of top executives tomorrow. It also so happens to be International Women's Day.
0: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to some of those conversations. New names, some of them, but some of them long-time guests on this program. Don't forget, has been just an incredible news flow day. You can recap all of it in the world of technology on our podcast, wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify, or iHeart, and, of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Two days down, three to go before the big move, Caro. Mm-hmm. This is Bloomberg.